0: Hello and welcome to episode number 95 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com/slash podcast, on Monday, June 28th, 2010. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Michael Phillips. Michael is an apple farmer, consultant, and a writer. He has written several books and is most well-known for his book, The Apple Grower, a guide for the organic orchardist. Michael Phillips, welcome to the Innovations podcast.
1: Oh, glad to be here.
0: Well, why don't you start by telling us a little b- a bit about your orchard. Where is it located and what do you produce there?
1: Well, I am up in far northern New Hampshire, about 30 miles shy of the Quebec border. Uh, which is not the typical New England apple growing region, Um, so we face lots of challenges with cold, and just like any other orchard, you know, there's the challenges (laughs) that you have there in terms of disease, pressure, and pests, and you you find a way to work with what you have at your site. I have probably about two and a half acres of apples here, um, on the order of 80 varieties, and what I'm doing is what I call the community orchard model, so We're very much attuned to the whole idea of local foods today, but orcharding presents its own unique challenges, and in many cases, people can sort of manage with a really big orchard scene, but you get into wholesale, and and those kinds of things happen on the West Coast, around the Great Lakes. There's still a few in New England, but for the most part, local orcharding is going to be a much smaller scale, and that can be anywhere from a neighborhood size orchard of 2450 trees to uh, about 300 like I have to four or five acres. And that smaller size is part of what lends itself to the organic approach, especially here in the east where we face particular insects and issues with a, a lot more humidity than they would necessarily on the west coast. And so I'm primarily selling fruit shares to neighbors in the surrounding towns and my orchard is, the one block is young, so as that production starts to increase, then I'll start reaching out to CSAs and supplementing their vegetable shares with a, a fruit share offer. That's kind of my gist of my marketing approach.
0: Okay. Now, the apple has been called the final frontier of organics. Why is this?
1: Well, well I'll just flip that question quickly, and <laughs> let's say you're an organic gardener, first-time organic gardener. You get your packet of red beet seed, and it's got to be in the ground for 60 days. And at the end of that, you're probably going to pluck a beet or some semblance of a beet out of the ground. With a tree, that's going to be in the ground two to five to as much as eight years before you get that first fruit. And it's subject to diseases throughout the growing season. During the dormant season, bacteria can move in, which will cause problems the following spring. The the pest cycles from the plum cuculio, which is a bevel, uh, little weevil-like bug, to coddling moth, which in places like California would have as many as five generations through the growing season, to having issues with voles eating the bark in winter under the snow, to deer breaking through the fence. There's a whole lot more challenges. And when you look at all those challenges in the context of a much longer growing season than it takes for most vegetables and the fact that you don't just get through the plum cuculio session, then comes the European apple sawfly, then comes the apple maggot fly, then comes the round-headed apple tree borer, different insects at different sites. Plus, on top of that, all the different diseases that can afflict the apple, um, you're suddenly faced with no real simple solutions. It's, it's rather comprehensive and involved to, to realize what it takes to get beyond those challenges, but do it in such a way that, that you can really enhance the way nature intended fruit to be grown, by which I mean support the health of the orchard system, support the health of the tree, support the health of the soil. And then a lot of those answers start falling more into place.
0: Okay, now despite the difficulty in growing apples and other fruits without chemicals, your work is certainly paving the way. Talk about some of the techniques and the practices that you use um, specifically to deal with some of these problems that you just Named.
1: Okay, what I'm gonna start you with is, is the whole notion of disease in the orchard. And for over a hundred years now we have approached disease as this spore from a fungus or a bacteria land on the surface of the leaf, land on the surface of the fruit, get into the blossom and cause fire blight going into that vascular system of the tree. All these disease organisms, these disease causing organisms come from outside the tree, and the tree gets sick. And we have used medicines to deal with that, and medicines in the form of fungicides. And those fungicides um, have been things like copper and sulfur, which are still accepted as organic fungicides, to a whole range of different chemistries in synthetic chemical orcharding. And that's very typical. That's the way we kind of think. (laughs) The disease comes from without and we have to use a toxic element to take care of it. Now, let's flip that around entirely and and recognize that in the wild, there are trees. Not every tree necessarily gets the disease. Now, some of that's due to the genetics of it. But some of it's also due to ecosystem advantages that makes that tree really, really healthy. And there's a whole bunch of relationships with beneficial fungi, the mycorrhizae in the, so- the soil, the saprophytic fungi that decompose and make minerals available to the tree, to fungi actually on the surface of the leaf um, that are out-competing the disease organisms. And when we start to work with orchard health, then rather than trying to beat back the disease from without with toxins, we try to support the, the immune function of the tree from within with the right kind of nutrition and a few other kind of herbal techniques that make it possible for that tree to stand up to a high-pressure disease environment. And a lot of this, for me, has been being able to uh, take the best of two worlds. One is what I would call deep organics, uh, that whole understanding of what makes a healthy soil and, and really building soil. And on, then also, on the other hand, my wife, Nancy's is an herbalist, and her herbal training helped me be introduced to the whole concept of holistic health, how if we support the system... The system is able to stand up to the many germs that we face as humans, just as the tree is able to stand up to a lot of these diseases. And a lot of people don't realize that a plant has an immune function, uh, and that immune function is is really a a phytochemical response to the presence of that disease organism. And many things can weaken that immune function from acid rain and high heat to drought, to the use of fungicides, to the use of nitrate fertilization, all the things we do to up yields. Um, But it's possible to help enhance that immune function. And some of the details that, just really quickly to encapsulate that, uh, the principal things that I do around that are provide fungal foods, foods for the microbes that are meant to be on the surface of the leaf, those take the form of liquid fish and pure neem oil. Now neem is a uh, ayurvedic medicine. It's a tree that grows in India and they press an oil from the seeds and it offers basically three three things for me as an orchardist. One is a series of azadirachtin compounds that inhibit the molting cycle of insects. So there's a whole very dramatic effect on insects. The second is that neem contains different phytoalexin compounds. Now, these are phytochemicals, basically terpenes and isoflavonoids that plants produce in response to a disease organism. What this does through the neem is stimulate the production of those very phytochemicals that the tree is going to use in turn to defeat disease. And then the third thing uh, that neem offers is a whole bunch of fatty acids. And fatty acids are really like of it as biological fuel. This is what fuels the microbes, the good species that we want colonizing that plant so that they in turn can out-compete the disease-causing organisms. Then mixing that whole idea of the fish and the neem, I'm also using effective microbes, which is a mix of beneficial species, um, photosynthetic bacteria and lactic acid bacteria and some yeast that kind of just tie into this whole cycle of, of what can be and actually, for three seasons now, successfully keeps the de- uh, disease at bay in my orchard. So it's really exciting stuff. It's really like this whole new frontier has opened up for, for fruit growers.
0: You've also described the use of clay um, in this process. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's another fascinating tool that's come on the horizon in the last dozen years or so. So um. Kale and clay is is the white clay that you would find in pottery. Uh, It's it's actually a food additive. Kale pectate, that medicine that you would have found in the drugstores, I think it's under a different name now, um, all contained kale and clay. So it's a a benign substance of the soil, an alumina silicate clay. And back in the 1920s and 30s, they were researching, could we cover our plants with this fine white dust? Uh, Would that keep the insects away? And back in the 1920s and 30s, the answer was no, because it basically blocked photosynthesis. That heavy, thick coat of clay didn't do anything to the bugs, and it really prevented the sunlight from getting down to the leaf cells. Flash forward to the mid-1990s, and researchers at the USDA research station in Kearneysville, West Virginia, started working with a refined kaolin. And now the the clay itself was processed through a giant electromagnetic centrifuge reducing the particle size to four microns or less. And the whole dynamic of what took place on the plant changed. One, uh, photosynthesis was not blocked. and In fact, actually net photosynthesis was increased because the light bounced between the small clay particles and got into the interior of the tree better than it used to. But even better, from the perspective of a a frustrated orchardist trying to deal with this coolio weevil, The clay particles would come off onto the insect when it crawled out to get to the fruitlets, where it was going to either be feeding or laying an egg directly in the fruitlet. And in the process of crawling through all those fine, tiny particles of clay, the clay would slip off onto the insect. So now it had all these somewhat sharp-edged, but not cutting-edge, sharp-edged particles in its armpits and up its nose and in its eyebrows and in its reproductive parts, and rather than feeding and stinging the fruit and doing what its, its basic mission in life is, it, would start, it starts spending its time just totally grooming. It's just irritated by these particles. It has no energy to think about feeding and laying eggs and seeks out another place to go. So the play acts as a repellent against what has really been our Achilles heel in organic orcharding for a long, long time uh, by a rather benign means. On top of that, it also has some ability to suppress coddling moth egg laying. Now it's a whole different mechanism, but that moth flying at twilight with her looking for a place to lay her eggs near fruitlets, if not on the fruitlet itself, lands on the tree. And through her antenna and the receptors in her feet, she feels that slippery white clay. And it just doesn't feel like an apple tree or whatever fruit tree you're, you're working with. And so it goes somewhere else to lay its egg. So it's, it's, it's a phenomenal development, and it's, it's based in part on our ability technology-wise to be able to reduce the size of the clay particles. But it's also just how we're progressing as, as growers in terms of our thinking and understanding of the dynamics of what are pests doing in the environment. And the one step that I add with this is I always leave a tree or two or three Unsprayed in the orchard. I know certain varieties that are really favored by the cocculio, and here the idea of a trap tree is: I don't want to keep my trees covered with the clay for six or eight weeks. I'd rather reduce it to about a two-week window. They're going to go to the trap tree, and it's under the trap tree that I bring my chickens in, or I lay carpets down so that when the larvae get out of the apple to pupate in the soil, they're blocked from getting into the soil. So I'm able to knock back next year's generation on top of it. So there's a lot of these interactions that take place around each bug, and it's complicated at the first reading, but as you you start to learn the particulars of of your site, what pests you face, and you start to think about their points of vulnerability, uh, tools like the kale and play are incredibly useful to alter the dynamics so that you end up getting a much higher proportion of untouched fruit.
0: Well, one of the things you've also mentioned is that observation has been a really important part of uh, how you figured some of these things out. Now, uh, that's pretty obvious by listening to you talk about this, but maybe for some it's not so obvious about how you actually go through the process of, of observing some of these pests and diseases and fungi. Um, can you talk a little bit about observation and um, how one cultivates that skill?
1: Sure. Um, well, it starts with a glass of fine hard cider
0: <laughs>
1: and going out every evening and just checking in with your trees. Um, it could be your morning coffee, but the point is you get out there and you just see what is taking place. Um, I think one of the, the first examples of this for me was as you start to tune in, your eye starts to pick up a lot more minutia that someone just casually walking by a fruit tree wouldn't begin to even think about or notice. And one of those things that I started to find was different clusters of insect eggs laid on the leaf. And I knew um, basically what no insect egg looked like. (laughs) And that told me, well, you don't know what those are going to become. And, you know, maybe 5% of the pests and insects in an orchard are pests, and another 10% are direct beneficials in that they parasitize those pests. And the other 80%, 85% are absolutely benign, innocent. Maybe they're pollinators. Um, they just, they belong there. <laughs> and I, I learned to not go with my impulse to smash those eggs. And then I started to learn what some of those eggs were. And the orange ones were the ladybug beetle. And these barrel-shaped purple ones, and I had a little magnifying glass to see this, um, turned out to be minute pirate bugs, which go on to capture moth larvae, which are the worm and the apple. So that's just one thing. And then you start to see the edges of buds are being chewed, and then you start to peel back where a curled leaf is and there. You find the caterpillar. You take that from there, and you go to the extension literature, or use what i provided in my book, or go to another fruit grower, you start to learn, well, this is actually, this pest, this is its name. This is European apple fly, let's say. And Then you learn its life cycle. And whenever you have a a pest like sawfly, um, the larva eats the seeds in the developing fruitlets. It eats maybe three or four fruitlets worth. That fruitlet falls to the ground, the last one. The larva crawls into the soil where it's going to pupate. Well, you you start to recognize that's a point of vulnerability. In the soil um, is a place where I can use something like beneficial nematodes or Buvaria bassiana, which is a parasitic fungus that I can spray onto the ground at twilight when an evening rain is taking it into the soil. And I can start to clean up my orchard. So that's a kind of pest-specific answer to your question. But then with the whole microbe thing and the whole (laughs) disease-causing organisms, we're talking about things that are essentially invisible to the human eye. But as you start to To feel what's going on out there, you get attuned to it. And I I know not everyone's going to have that same level of attunement. I mean, for me, part of my uh, working pleasure is is the ability to share through words. This is what's going on. Um, We may not see it. Maybe you don't even care, but I hope that I'm kindling some interest (laughs) in you as a a reader, as a grower of fruit. But here's what we do. And uh, it was Liberty Hyde Bailey. He was a... uh, professor at Cornell back at the turn of the previous century, and he edited a number of series of horticultural books on fruit growing, on vegetable growing, almost every subject to do with agriculture. And one of his quotes was, if a grower knows why, he or she will teach themselves how. And that's really where I come from. It's it's understanding the why, understanding those interconnections that make this such a fascinating world, um, and then being able to work in a way that I can support and build the health of those systems, and when I do have to take an action to get more of a balance on a pest situation, I do it in such a way that I have minimal impact on other things. Because really, anything we do in the orchard, even something as simple as mowing the grass, has effects on different other life forms that are out there in that environment.
0: Well, the community orchard is something that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about, in more detail about this. Um, Tell us what a community orchard is, how exactly you envision this model could work in practice, and maybe even talk a little bit about the economics of community orchards. Okay. So let's
1: let's say a person has a spark, and that spark says, I'm going to plant some fruit trees and grow some fruit for my family. And maybe they plant two trees, maybe they plant ten trees. Um, it doesn't take too many years till the trees get big enough and there's a little extra fruit. And that person hopefully has had some good teaching and is observing and learning good lessons and starts to think, I could grow a half acre of this. I'm really enjoying this. I want want to grow more. Um, That's the beginning of a community orchard because you're, you're getting involved to the extent that you're going to be able to help grow food for people in the places where we all live. And this totally runs counter to the idea that there are are certain spots on the planet that are the most economically efficient to grow tree fruit. So the West Coast, the dry side of of the mountains out there in Oregon, Washington uh, come to mind. Because it's so dry, they don't deal with fungal disease pressures. And that just takes away a whole lot of the issues. On the other hand, my family doesn't live on the dry side of Oregon. We live here in northern New Hampshire, and even though it's not traditionally a prime apple-growing region, um, because of the mountains and the clouds come in some years, and that blocks some of the sunshine, and then we don't have necessarily a strong return bloom the following spring, all these things are interconnected, we live here. And this is where I do want to grow apples. And when I grow a wide array of varieties, I'm always going to get a crop of some proportion from some of those trees every year. And we make cider and we sell to friends and neighbors. And so my vision here is I don't have answers of how a small farmer deals with land mortgages and insurances and paying federal taxes. We've got to add all that into our scenarios today. But somehow, in our little niches of we do some of this, we do some of that, the typical kind of way of making a New England living. if more and more people can realize, I can grow apples and some peaches and some apricots, we can start to have more of a local food supply. And if some of those people figured out or earn a spot with a big enough market that they can do it full-time, that's great. But we need a lot more part-time farmers <laughs> because basically we, we have way too many zero-time farmers today. And if we're going to get back into a sustainable agricultural society, we're going to do it in steps and community orcharding in my mind, is one of those steps. So people can be a full-time, make a full-time living at fruit growing, and that's wonderful. If you're in the right spot and you're getting consistent annual crops, and again, your market's big enough to support it, that works. If, on the other hand, you've got the ability to grow 50 apple trees and supply the local general store, that also works. And so community orchard is basically a, a movement to support the small guy, and encourage more people growing food in the places that we live. And we need to do that in all respects. We need to do that with dairy. We need to do that with vegetables, grains, what have you.
0: Well, you've also, um, on your website, you've provided some actual hard numbers to this. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yes. The economics, sure. So now we come to um, the notion that food should be cheap, and we, we want to take that notion and stand right up to it. Food should be what it costs to grow it, and pay an honest wage for the people working hard to do that, and it should cover the costs of doing that. So, in the case of apples, which I'm fairly well versed in, that basically means a farmer needs to get a dollar fifty to two dollars, to perhaps as much as two fifty a pound for organic fruit. And you'll actually find non-organic fruit going for that price. Um, if it happens to be an apple in vogue like the Honeycrisp right now is getting that 2 to 3 dollar a pound range up till oh 10 years ago there were a lot more orchards 10 20 years ago locally a lot of them have gone under because a lot of those mid-sized larger regional orchards depended on wholesale marketing and the stores have gotten into the west coast fruit apples are coming from abroad from Chile, um, South America during our sp- spring and summer months, from the west coast in the, the fall winter months, there's fruit storage. Most of the juice market has now been cornered by Chinese concentrates. You know, it's it's that whole global thing. <laughs> in the meanwhile, apple prices in the supermarkets have also gone up to where they're on on the order of a dollar twenty nine to a dollar eighty nine a pound, and suddenly the small farmer is back. In a competitive spot, where and saying, I need to get a dollar fifty. If you're buying my apples in bulk, I need to get two dollars a pound. Um, and then, on top of that, whether it's at your own farm stand or at the farmers market, you start sharing tastes of this fruit grown in a living soil. And there's just so much more consciousness uh, again than there was 20 years ago. And it's not just the demand for organic. It's also that people recognize there's so many flavors. An apple actually tastes like this. Uh, I haven't wanted to eat a store-bought apple for, for years, and this one I just devoured all the way to the core. As people start getting tuned into the lore of the apple, some of the heirloom varieties and also some of the newer varieties, again, it's a phenomenal difference when a fruit tree is grown in a living soil system. And, and you are really emphasizing the biology. The, the the flavor density is increased. The nutrient density is increased, um, and that's part of your sales pitch. The apples, the peaches, the nectarines, the, the pluots—they speak for themselves because that kind of quality can rarely be delivered in a in a wholesale grocery situation. And when you start to look at that dollar fifty a pound number, um, a bushel varies in weight, but we'll just call it 40 pounds of apples. If they're smaller apples, it's going to weigh more. If they're bigger, it might be 38 pounds. But 40 pounds, $1.50 a pound, that's $60 a bushel. And when you have an acre of of freestanding trees, you have about 120 trees to an acre, and each tree is going to be producing somewhere between three, five bushels a year uh, if you have annual production going on with every variety. So we're looking at, on the order of, Three to 600 bushels an acre. And I like to tell people, let's stay moderate here, and and so we'll use that 400-bushel number, charging at the the, the $60 a bushel. If everything was top-grade fruit, that's, I'm doing math quickly on the podcast math in my head, that's $24,000 a year. So netting on the order of $10,000, $15,000 beyond cost Uh, because when you add in a tractor and whatever it takes to do things on a slightly larger scale than a dozen trees, um, that's not that impossible. And people can start to see, oh, I see where that fits. It is a lot of work. It's hundreds of hours of work to do this organically, to bring in the mulches. and, And, you know, you don't have herbicides to keep the ground more open under your tree. I just completed cutting the grass around my 300 trees. I didn't use a power mower. I used a, a European scythe, a straight-handled scythe, And I do that in part because I want to lay a thick mulch by the trees. And I do it because it's so peaceful and it's such a good workout for my body. But, again, it's a lot of hours of labor. But when the crop comes in on that number basis, it's, it's an actual living in the context of these times. And that is a great change that more people are aware of the value of food
0: What are the prospects that we can put some of these orchards in uh, local parks and schools and and that sort of thing? Or do you think that maybe this is something that's better suited to areas outside of suburban and urban areas?
1: Oh, no, I think that's a wonderful idea. And and there are are different urban orchard movements. Um, There's folks in California going around and planting apple trees on at schools. All those things are, are, are great. But what's missing there in a lot of these situations is the orchardist. <laughs> and it takes someone with that passion and that vision to tie the potential of the trees and bring that about. Um, volunteers on a kind of a ad hoc basis who don't really have that involvement with the trees and that understanding of it aren't necessarily going to succeed with those trees. And some fruits, in some years, the weather pattern will be right. Maybe it's isolated enough from pests, it will work out. But usually the weak link is is not really having that orchardist or someone directing specific tasks that are needed to make sure that the fruit crop comes in. And again, some years will work out. Some years, those crops may not come to pass, but it's still worth it because there are trees, and people are, even if they're not working to help produce that crop, they're driving by those trees, and they're, they're tied back more to that, the greenness of the earth. And in different ways, they might start to get involved. But you usually need that someone who's got a sense of what needs to be done to make those things be successful.
0: Well, I agree, and... It's, when, when we talk about putting these things in schools or in parks, I mean, obviously it's technically feasible, um, but some of these issues like land rights and who owns the trees and who's going to make the money and all of that, uh, we're not quite there yet. Maybe as a society, um, you know, hopefully we'll make some progress in that regard. I, I also wanted to ask you about some of your writings and work with medicinal herbs and plants. Why are these plants important, and what are some steps people can take to reintroduce them into their lives and into their communities?
1: Well, all the plants are a gift. And our species evolved with many of these plants, um, eating, tasting, um, whether the leaves were bitter or, or succulent. I mean, we just we're trying lots of different things. And whether it was through trial and error, I believe it actually had a very much a intuitive component. We started to recognize how certain herbs had a connection to certain issues that we might be dealing with. Um, and in the deepest sense, when you get into herbal medicine, um, you learn that the medicine of the plants is, is really to keep you healthy, to provide the nutrition, that makes the body function. You know, our, our immune systems need support and our body has a a way to regenerate cells. And we start working with that. Um, it's just absolutely incredible that what we most need is usually right outside our door. I'm, I'm sitting here and on my farm, looking out at all kinds of medicinal plants. So that's an easy statement for me to make. Um, you know, these are, these are not exotic plants. These are everyday plants. The dandelion, which was brought over here from Europe, specifically because people recognized it as such a great food um, and also as a medicine plant. Um, one of the reasons we do spring greens with dandelions is to get those nutrients back into our body, those spring tonics. Garlic uh, is a very familiar food, um, and garlic... Once you start to learn the uses of it, it's almost like you could say you know 50% of what you need to know about herbal medicine just by the use of that plant, Um, whether it's using it raw because that's when it has the antibiotic quality um, to cure a coming strep uh, strep throat condition or wound areas, or whether you cook it and you start to realize this is where its anti-cancer properties come from. If you macerate it and soak it overnight in olive oil, it produces a Jones, and that's what gives garlic this incredible blood-thinning ability. You can start to learn that stuff, and it's really fascinating, and we all should have a little bit of a base in that. On the other hand, it's, it's just good eating, <laughs> and the more we have that diversity from all these different plants in our diet, um, the better off we are. And, and I could go, you know, I'm not versed like my wife Nancy in terms of, Specific conditions. In fact, I, I kind of kid sometimes that I get very good at learning what plants help any condition that I get. But I'm only willing to get so many conditions, <laughs> so I'm never going to be a, a, a widely versed herbalist. as some of, of my wife's friends, um, but it's it's really a basic life skill, and people need to discover this. We've we've kind of messed up the whole idea of what is medicine. It's not just pills in a bottle that suppress symptoms because now we've gotten sick. It, it's really green power that keeps us healthy so that we get sick a whole lot less often. And we help our body deal with degenerative disease conditions, um, not just in a palliative way, but in a way that actually brings us back once we start to understand the, the function of diet. And a lot of herbalism is, really fits the concept that food is medicine.
0: Well, Michael Phillips, I'd like to thank you for joining us today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. And I'd like to thank you for the books that you've written and also for the great work that you're doing there in New Hampshire, uh, showing many people the way in terms of how we can produce apples in a way that is more uh, certainly more sane and perhaps even more just and um, easier on our environment as well. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Frank.
0: That concludes my interview with Michael Phillips, author of the book, The Apple Grower. You can find that book on Amazon.com, and also I will link to Michael Phillips' website on the show notes for this episode of the podcast so that you can check that out. There's a lot of information, some of it which was covered in this interview and some of it which was not. If you're interested in learning more about Michael, his orchard, and his techniques, um his website would probably be the best place to start. Next week, we'll be talking about wild farming with a representative from the Wild Farm Alliance. So, if you're interested in that topic, then please be sure to tune in. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations, and also you can subscribe to the Agro Innovations podcast via our RSS feed, which is on the website for the podcast, or through iTunes. I strongly encourage listeners to visit our website, share your comments and ideas via the comment thread on any specific episode for which you have some thoughts you'd like to share. I always do appreciate it when listeners participate in that manner. So if you get a chance, please do so. This is the Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos.